This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. And so there was a place called Virginia that existed, hello, about 200 years before a place called America existed. And within there, there was caste. And so when we're talking about this caste system, like it's literally older than America itself. Mm -hmm. And it's it's in every fiber of America once you like, it reminds me of that movie with Rowdy Roddy Piper back in the day where like you put the glasses on and you can see the aliens all of a sudden. Like when you've, once you've read this book and have an understanding, like you can see the cast structure everywhere. Channel 253 is a member supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. One, two, two, interchangeable. White ladies. One, two, two, interchangeable. White ladies. Inter- interchangeable. In- interchangeable. White ladies. Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Megan. Today we have a very special episode. It is our Read Less Basic Book Club episode. Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> we have a fantastic cast of characters. Hey, bad joke, oh, especially considering wah, wah. the fact that the book that we're talking about today is cast by Isabel Wilkerson. <laughs> I almost didn't make that joke because coming from a white lady talking about a book about race and then like cast of characters and then cast in the book. I felt it was really bad and maybe distasteful, but I still made the joke. I you just went in. ahead with my mediocre white man like self, that part of myself. Yeah. And I just Isn't it like 80% it. of comedy is commitment, you know? Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And so we're committed to a good discussion today. <laughs> okay, wow, they're just bad <laughs> segues coming today. Um, with that said, we are super lucky to have a couple of guests with us to join us in our conversation. First of all, we have coming to the stage. Oh, I'm trying to channel my inner like wrestler announcer, Nate Bowling, oh, the 2016 oh, Washington State Teacher of the Year, otherwise known as the host of Nerd Farm Podcast, most hey, recently the maker of Consome. Okay, so welcome to the show, Nate. I can tell you did not listen to my episodes because we made all the cast cast jokes already, and so that's fine. I won't take it personal. Mm-hmm. Okay, oh, the shade sh- already. The saltiness is wow here. Yeah, particularly. My goodness. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, to level out that salt and maybe with a little bit of sweetness, we have <laughs> my favorite middle school humanities teacher, Chrissy Calera. Hi, Chrissy. Welcome to the show. Hi. I'm excited to be here. So Chrissy's a first-time guest, long-time listener. Um, you've been in the classroom for 10 years, and you're new with us here at ACS, but you've been all over the world. Is that correct? Yeah, well, I've been, yeah, America here. I've actually my, I've done most of my teaching in the UAE. Yeah. Awesome. Crazy well, thank you for coming today and joining us on the show. And of course, uh, you have your favorite IWL hostesses with the mostesses, Megan and myself. Mostesses. Mm-hmm. Okay. So before we, by the way, I'm going to just pause and thank my wonderful co-host Hope for that amazing intro to our guests. I think that you did fantastic, Hope. Just putting it out there. So I have a podcast. I can get positive feedback. <laughs> um, before we jump into the conversation, 
Um, we want to preface this by saying that throughout this conversation, we are going to be embedding some student thoughts and voice memos. I have had the pleasure of um, conducting a book club with some of my students this year about this specific book. And I asked some of my students to record their thoughts about really specific questions. And as always, you know, the students came back with really amazing insights and thoughts um, and their really big takeaways from this book. So we um, really just wanted to focus and highlight those voices. And then before we start, we want to center one of those student voices in this conversation. Who should read this book and why? I think that everybody should read this book because it's the reality of what it means to live in America. Like all the ideals that Wilkerson introduces are things that I feel we all subconsciously know about, but we're just unsure or are too comfortable to give it any attention. And I feel like the content is a little difficult to wrap your head around. I There was a lot of times where I had to reread some things or I had to ask questions about or had to look things up. But like having conversations about it really helped me. I feel like reading cast would benefit anybody, really. And I think that anybody who's willing to pick up the book and read it could learn something and definitely just take something away from it. I feel like the point of this book was to evoke conversations and... I feel like great conversations will come out of this book. So just picking up the book and reading it could just, it would benefit anybody really. Um, so with that framing to start us off, we'd like to, to just start with simply that question. What are some things, what are your initial thoughts around this book when you read it, initial reactions, or now that you've had a few months, um, for some of you, a few months to think about this, this work. Nate, go um, ahead. I'll, st I'll start, yeah. Isabel Wilkerson previously wrote a book called The Warmth of Their Sons, which is the story of the Great Migration. And I think about my own family. I have a very stereotypically black family where, like, my father was born in Mississippi. My mother was born in Arkansas. Uh, my stepfather was born in Texas. And they were all, uh, they all were purveyors or, or, or traveled the path of the Great Migration. Caste is an explanation and a conversation about racial structure in the United States. And... I think what really, really hit me about this book, and I think a point that is worth repeating is, is that all societies have a caste structure, like within schools, within sports teams, within Scandinavian countries, like there's mm -hmm. always a caste structure, but few states have a caste system. And I wanna make that distinction early and hammer that point that like the system of caste we have in the United States is actually distinct from other systems of caste that are, exist around the world. Like, we can go and talk about a whole bunch of places that do a whole bunch of messed up stuff, uh, but there are parts of Americans, America's racial caste system that are so effed up, like how the Kennedy mentioned this on my episode, that like the Nazis were like, that's too far. So for example, like the one drop rule. The one drop rule of racial caste in the United States is more extreme than the rules that the Nazis used for Jews during World War II. And I know that's quite triggering for like good liberals out there and like a lot of white folks to hear like the United States is worse than Nazi Germany. And I'm not saying the United States is worse than Nazi Germany. I'm saying the caste system constructed in the United States uh, is on par with the caste system that was constructed in Nazi Germany. And as a guest on my show, my show pointed out, the caste system in Nazi Germany only lasted from like what, 1933 till 1945. Mm -hmm. And the caste system in the United States is 400 years in climate. Mm -hmm. The caste system in Nazi Germany was 
also inspired by the caste system in the, the U.S. And just sure. I think going back and just like what this book did for me or meant to me was um, just how much I did not know. And I consider myself a somewhat aware um you know, person, but part of reading it was knowing that there was a lot I didn't know and it was part of a, a big, a bigger journey of learning. Um, but it was just, the more I learned, the more I realized how much I don't know. It's like one of those, like, mm. um, you know, activities that you do with your students where you have like a really zoomed in picture and you ask them to tell you what's going on and they tell you, and then you zoom out a little bit and they're like, oh, I didn't know what was going on. And then, you know, they come up with an idea and you just keep zooming out. And I just kind of felt like that reading this book was just, I thought I knew but I didn't know. And then it was just like that zooming out of how much I just did not know. Um, yeah, that was the biggest, the biggest takeaway for me was just how much was in there that I thought I knew and that was mm -hmm. very wrong. Yeah, I really loved how um, Wilkerson framed the conversation and she just kept going back to Nazi Germany and kept going back to the Indian caste system and uh, South African as well. But the other two, I think were more dominant or I felt like they were more dominant in the way that I was reading and listening to the book. And I, I found it interesting that she, um, like I found it interesting that she compared it to those one, like you said, uh, one uh, about the other, they're based on each other and so on, but also just thinking about people's frame of references, right? So a lot of us think we know about World War II when we know about the Nazis and Hitler. We learn it a lot in school, like over and over. So we feel like we know it, but the way that she's talking about it and then framing in this way, I think to your point, Chrissy, really highlighted some things that were not there before. And then I think actually a lot, I would venture to say that a lot of Americans don't really understand or know much about the Indian caste system. And mm -hmm. so even for myself, I found that, like, I thought, oh, I know it has some surface level info, but I found myself really um, also finding that part really interesting because I, I, there was so much I didn't know. And just the parallels are really um, profound. Yeah, I, I think absolutely echoing what you said of as I read, and also the way that Wilkerson writes the book is so... Um, it's almost like a laser pointer. It is so clear and intentional and it makes you see the United States in, in a way that you cannot ever unsee it. And it, it kind of pulls back the curtain. And I also think I, I thought that I knew about the Indian caste system <laughs> as like a history teacher and like somebody that I feel is fairly educated about the world. Mm -hmm. But I think what I realized was that the way that I had consumed the, the, my knowledge about the Indian caste system is very much how Asia is per, like perceived and taught in the United States is very mm -hmm. ancient and very almost mythical and very it's not tangible and and I think that I have been really diving into um just the the way that the western world teaches and consumes information about Asia mm -hmm. um and that's part of that's part of it is that it the western um world really consumes information about Asia in a very like ancient way and that's how it's talked about like the ancient 3000 year old empires and and things like that and that's how I've always seen caste and I don't think I had ever thought about caste in a modern concept before and and so once I started to think about caste like the Indian caste in this modern context 
all of a sudden it was, oh, then you can easily like translate that and apply that in the modern context to the United mm -hmm. States. Um, and so like the structure and system of caste became mm -hmm. much more real. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of leads me into our next question, right? Of, at least for me of what's the most important passage or idea that you are taking away from this book and before we jump into that conversation, give you some time to resonate and think on that, we're going to play another student clip. Um, one of my students responded to this exact question. I believe that the most important idea in CAS is that being an anti-racist isn't just as simple as saying, I'm not racist. By saying, I'm not racist, you're still allowing this deep-rooted history of systemic racism to carry on in the country to affect uh, future generations just like it has past and present. So when we hear racist remarks or um, deal with racist remarks, it shouldn't be something we just simply ignore and carry on with. Because as we know, if we ignore it, we're simply letting the racists know that they can continue doing what they're doing without any repercussions. So by being anti-racist, we must keep others accountable around us and actually challenge the issue itself so we could dismantle this history of uh, the caste system in the United States that has really been plaguing the country uh, and people of color for generations and will continue to do so if we didn't do anything about it. So my question that I want to pose, though, um, is what thoughts do you have about what... Um, he said in his clip, or is there a different kind of important idea or passage that is sticking with you? So when I think about this book, one of the elements that I appreciate is that Wilkerson is doing a tool that Coates did as well in Between the World and Me. So when Coates referred to white people as being like the dominant group, he refers to them as people who think they're white or believe they're mm -hmm. white understanding that like whiteness is a racial construction and a social con construction that's like made up and changeable and fungible. Uh, Wilkerson does the same thing by using the term the dominant caste. And to me, that really demonstrates like how the definition of whiteness uh, can change. Uh, we, we're having conversations in my class here, my ninth grade global studies class about like how race is made up, like period, full stop. Mm -hmm. And we've talked in particular about how uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, many Jewish people in the United States, many Irish people, many Italian people were not considered white, but like whiteness has expanded and now includes them. Uh, within my lifetime, Arabs were considered to be white. And then post 9-11, you can literally watch whiteness being taken away from them as they're othered and put into a lower caste. Uh, I, I think the part, though, that was most meaningful to me, and like I can go off on this for, for 10 minutes, but I won't, is when Wilkerson talks about the pillars of caste and the systems that, like, that undergird caste. And one of the ones she talks about is divine will. And just the idea that like, if you think about caste in the United States and you think about religiosity in the United States, white, evan white evangelical Christianity is inexplicably linked to caste in the United States. And it goes back to the idea of manifest destiny. And one of the points that was made by a listener to my show, Sandy Boyd, she's the uh, director of Sea Common Ground, which is a nonprofit back east, is just the idea that like everyday white Americans choose their caste over democracy. And not only do they choose their caste over democracy, uh, the, they rationalize their choice oftentimes through religiosity and like contrive religious traditions that really are just like a manifestation of white dominance. And like, this is why I grew up in a black church 
that was a Baptist church that had its roots in the American South that was all black. Like you cannot divorce, you cannot divorce white racial identity and white dominant culture from like white religiosity because they are forces that work hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll kind of add to that. I mean, one of the biggest, I mean, is, is the name of the book cast. Like, like, like you were saying, Megan, a lot of people in America think of Asia in, you know, an ancient frame, but also in like a super far away reference and so like what what happens there isn't important unless it directly affects me right and so to to take something that to i think the average american this caste system is so old and so far away and really just make that comparison that parallel that it's not though like it's it's your backyard it's it's, Mm. and and you cannot ignore the parallels that she's that she's making and it just makes so much sense um but to add to what nate was saying about the the religious aspect of it um, there's a part of the book where uh, Charles Sumner, talking about Charles Sumner, and he quoted another humanitarian who said, caste makes distinctions where God has made none. And I remember that hitting me and just thinking so many Americans, yeah, that the, the white evangelical Americans are diving into this caste system, thinking that it's bringing them closer to God or it's what God wants them to do. And just, it's, but that's the exact opposite. Like God never made a caste system. And this is something that you have created because you just need to be in a position of power and doing that in the name of God, quote unquote. But, you know, it's just so hypocritical to what God is calling those evangelicals to do. And just the, the hypocrisy of, of that um, is just so blinding and so glaring. Um, and I think just one of the other things that that she brings up about um, she quotes James Baldwin when no one was white before he or she came to America mm-hmm. and that whole section of, of that like people were not divided in just these two colors of skin that came to America and just kind of having to take on that identity because I want to be part of the dominant caste so if that means I have to become white then I'm going to do that and that was something that was just really again one of those things I didn't know and just putting it in that context was um, yeah it's just insane what yeah, someone- Related to that, I was thinking about the phrase um, she used a few times, the illusionment of entitlement. And so I think that kind of weaves both of the things that have been said already. Just it's this false entitlement that's, or the illusion of it. And then within that, she kept using the phrase um, that essentially white people need to be in charge or that they are those are the dominant and Cassie to be in charge. They, they're in charge to correct direct and police and she kept saying that over and over and over again mm-hmm. um which i feel like is part of part of this conversation that was something that stood out to me mm-hmm. i i keep um nate and chrissy what you said keep thinking about this documentary that's on my watch list from pbs about the black church that came out during um the black history month and it's all about how the black church is the resistance it was the resistance it was created the black church was created as a part of that resistance in that movement because the white evangelical church had become synonymous with this concept of white supremacy and um so anyways if you haven't heard of that documentary i've heard really really good things about it it's on my my list to watch um i i also think that for me, the most important idea of shifting from talking about 
the United States as being racist, which it is, but more so to it talking about it as the caste, as the structure, yeah. as um, it is more than just racism. And, and I hope that as we move away from just talking about it as racism and more so to the system that we exist in, the structure that we exist in that was intentionally created and built, that people are able to detach their own, and like maybe that's just like <laughs> too hopeful, but detach their own, <laughs> um, their own selves and their own egos from it to really dismantle it. Um, I, I think that's lofty, but I, I'm hopeful that if we talk about it more in that sense, um, that we can begin to make movement on it. But that was uh, uh, something I really appreciated from the book was this is like the system that was built and it was a structure that was built. And I always think about reconstruction after the civil war, it like reconstruction was only 12 years, everybody. Like I want to say that over and over and over again, reconstruction only lasted 12 years and it ended because of a backroom deal for a white politician, a white man to become president. And that's what it took for the party that was, you know, fighting and building reconstruction in the South. That's all it took for them to abandon it. And and so if it's a if it's a caste system, of course it wasn't gone in 12 years. There's no way to dismantle a structural system like that in 12 years that had been hundreds of years in the making. And I, I just hope that like we can move in our conversations away from like individual beliefs and more into like the systems that create those beliefs. Mm-hmm. I just want to add that the caste system in the United States is much more older and res- more resilient than a lot of folks actually get their head around. Mm-hmm. Uh, a point that I made in my classroom at the beginning of the year, uh, we're reading some of the founding documents and talking about Brutus One and the arguments between the Federals and Anti-Federalists. If we think about the colony of Virginia, the colony of Virginia was established in like the 1500s. And so there was a place called Virginia that existed hello, about 200 years before a place called America existed. And within there, there was caste. And so when we're talking about this caste system, like it's literally older than America itself. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's in every fiber of America. Once you like, it reminds me of that movie with Rowdy Roddy Piper back in the day where like you put the glasses on and you can see the aliens all of a sudden. Like when you've, once you've read this book and have an understanding, like you can see the caste structure everywhere. And two of the points that she made, going back to like the pillars of caste, that really resonated with me is the idea of the caste and inheritability. So members of the dominant caste expect for their children to be members of the dominant caste as well. And Mm -hmm. then basically pass on and try to pass on all the benefits of that caste to their children. And this is, and so once you understand this, all of a sudden there's no question about why white folks uh, want segregated schools, segregated neighborhoods. And then once you understand that members of the dominant caste not only want to maintain that heritability, but also, uh, so Wilker uses the word endogamy, basically like banning race mixing and interracial marriage. Again, like all of the, all of the laws about, about race mixing and like language that has uh, erupted out of modern conservatism about like race trading, like this is all manifestations of caste. And so... One way that you can frame this idea of caste is, is that like caste is the 
spine of American culture, and caste is the spine of the American government, and caste is the spine of dominant white Christianity. And if we're going to actually interrupt this caste system, we have to be interrogating it and attacking it on all levels. But the thing is, like, black folks have been trying to do that for 400 plus years. This is white folks' work. And this is a point that I'm arriving to about the current moment in American politics and the current moment of like civil rights. Like the demands that black Americans are making as part of the Black Lives Matter movement are literally basically exact same demands they are making about law enforcement in the 1960s with Bobby Seale, which are basically the same demands are being made about law enforcement during Reconstruction. So like black folks have tried to, black folks have been trying to get dominant white society to stop killing us to stop utilizing uh, the constabulary, to stop incarcerating us at disproportionate rates, to stop uh, constructing laws that cause us to be uh, have more interaction with law enforcement for 200 some odd years. And like this can only be constructed by white folks. And this is a point where like I get pushed back because there's a, a, a faction of black thought that is like about black separation and black liberation and like black like, White folks created white supremacy. White folks benefit from white supremacy. Mm -hmm. White folks must end white supremacy. Oh, and mm -hmm. by the way, I'm not hopeful about any of it. I think one of the things that resonated with me with the conversation that you had with Logic on your episode. Oh, you, you listened. Did. Oh, I did listen. See, I did. Um, oh, thanks, Megan. got that's, real that's part of the homework that when I did was when the, the topic of that that exact thing right that white people created white supremacy white people created this cast they have to dismantle it but then logic said but i don't trust white people to do it right i don't trust them to do it and so <clears throat> and that, that's where he came in of like where he does the work right but it's i <clears throat> i don't it's just that resonated with me of yeah it's our job to do it but like what if you don't trust the people's that are responsible to do it, to actually do the work and to do it well, right? So maybe like there's like those white allies that are doing the work and they're like, you know, trying, but it's, they're not doing it well and they're not, you know, they're messing it up. And I, I just, I think about that a lot as well of, I don't know, I, I've been reflecting on that since I listened to that episode of. If I may, if I may, I don't, I don't trust Chuck Schumer to end white dominance and white supremacy. I don't trust Nancy Pelosi, who I, I like most of the time, to end white dominance and white supremacy. I don't trust Joe Biden to end white dominance and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. I don't trust Mitt Romney to end white dominance and white supremacy. I don't trust Mitch McConnell to end white dominance and white supremacy. I don't trust... I can keep going, right? Yeah. So, so because well, it's... But this reminds me, like, as you guys were talking, I keep thinking about numerous times in the book where she gives specific moments where white people could have done something different and they didn't. What yeah. they did was police, uh, correct, direct, reinforce their positionality, right? Reinforce the narrative. And one of the things that comes to mind as you're, you're all talking about is that moment, there were several moments on airplanes because she talked a lot about her traveling experiences, but I'm particularly thinking about the one where the dude essentially um, assaulted her in the in the aisle with his bag, with his butt, all that stuff. And how she looked around to the people around her for like so, like somebody to see and witness, in particular for women. And those of you who have listened to the show for any time, you know that we're very much about calling other women for not stepping up when it comes to these yeah. types of things. Like this is a moment of solidarity that that should have superseded 
whatever else in that moment, but it didn't, right? Their, ca their caste system and the, the fact that they wanted to maintain power and all the things that are enshrined in it, whether or not they meant to do it, I don't care if, like, to me, it just, it's irrelevant whether they meant to do it or not. They did it, right? None of them stood up in that moment. And of course, no man stood up in that moment as well. And we've all been on planes trying to get out and people are really annoying on planes. So it's not like we haven't been there. And I, I think if you're a woman, you've definitely had that, something similar happen to you at some point. And so there's no reason for there. I mean, we know the reason, but ultimately I think about those moments, like that's a moment where you can disrupt the system. That's a moment where you can be a better ally or even just question um, and fight against what is ingrained or what has been programmed yeah. in you. I, I, as we're having this conversation, like this analogy or this example just hit me. So I work at a leadership camp for high school students and we play a game. We call it a game, but really it's a kind of social experiment. We call it star power. And essentially it is about, um, it's trying to teach them the power of like being a leader and being in a position of power. And what do you do with that? Um, and there's the squares um, circles and triangles, the squares are the top. And it basically it's a point earner. We play it as you're trading chips and um, you're trying to get as many points as possible round to round. But after the first round, we're stacking the bags. And so the squares are always pulling from the bags that have the highest value chips and the circles and triangles are pulling from bags that don't have as high value. So round after round, the squares are just getting more points, more and more points. But then we introduce the power for the squares to change the rules for the game. And so they get to change and we frame it as, well, you are really good at this game, right? Like you have shown that you were really good at trading you have shown that you're really like man oh man you are so good at this that we are going to allow you to kind of change the rules now we as a staff talk about this six or seven years ago the squares man were ruthless in their rules like they took the chairs away from the triangles they wouldn't um they had to, when they wanted to trade, initiate a trade with a square, they would have to get on their knees and crawl. They would have to like just really horrific degrading rules. And over the years, we've seen that shift where mm -hmm. all of a sudden it's not degrading rules. It's rules that have the perception of creating an equal playing field. But in all actuality, the squares are never putting their power at risk. And so they're elevating the triangles and circles. They're giving them kind of, oh, well, you can hold more chips. Like triangles can have 10 chips instead of seven when they calculate at the end. And But they always create rules that are still going to allow them to win the game, right? And so the conversation and debrief at the end is, well, why not just make it equal, right? Like, why, why do you feel like you had to hold on to it? And I just think that it's a perfect analogy of caste and how maybe society, not maybe, but how society has shifted, where even white allies, consciously or not, are still trying to position themselves to have more power. And sure, you're doing the work to try and elevate the lower castes and you're trying, you're like, painting yourself as an ally but the feeling of giving up power and mm -hmm. the fear of giving up power is so strong that you're never going to be willing to mm -hmm. fully 
deconstruct the structural racism that exists in this country Mm -hmm. because giving away power is scary. And so to me, that's why giving, I don't know, like I don't have a lot of faith that white people in power are willing to do the actual work to deconstruct it because that's going to require them to position themselves in a really vulnerable place. And so I don't, it, like hearing our conversation made me think about that game. And it's like, yeah, maybe we're not as openly creating rules, like forcing like the triangles to get on their knees in order to trade with the squares. But we're absolutely not creating rules that are actually going to, in a real meaningful way, create equity in our country. Let me tell you about elections in Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama. That is where triangles are forced to, are forced to, are forced to, are forced to. The state of Georgia created vote by mail, universal vote by mail with no excuse because it benefited them until it did not benefit them. Now they want to take it away. And so what you're talking about is the history of election law in the United States. And it comes to a point, and Megan, I think we had this conversation before about teaching government class. Mm -hmm. And it didn't hit me until my fourth time through the cycle that if the United States actually abided by the 14th Amendment, its due process clause, its equal protection clause, then the entire civil rights movement did not need to happen. Mm -hmm. And so essentially we have in law everything we need to deconstruct caste, and we literally choose to not do so. Much in the same way we had in law what we needed to deconstruct uh, segregation, and we we waited 100 years to do it. And so there was a 100-year gap from the passing of the 14th Amendment to the passing of the Civil Rights Act, Fair Housing Act, Voting Rights Act. And right now, we're actually picking those acts apart rather than strengthening them. And so we're literally headed the wrong way on this. Mm-hmm. And I, I think like not a lot of people realize that, oh my gosh, why can't I think of the Supreme Court case, Nate, where the, it um, opened up for <clears throat> Shelby Beholder, right? Where it like allowed Southern states to all of a sudden bring in more barriers for people of color to vote in the South, whereas before the federal government had the power to have oversight over these states' election laws. And Shelby V. Holder got rid of that. And so that's why ever since 2015, we have seen states roll out laws that have systematically increased barriers to voting. And it, and yeah, I, I think about that a lot. Christy, anything? I can't read your face. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm soaking a lot of that in. But yeah, I think exactly what you're saying, Megan, about um, taking the example that Hope gave of uh, Isabella Borkison on the plane. And I think, I wonder how many of the people around her thought they were good people, good white people, and thought that you know, they were doing every everything they could to elevate, you know, people in the in the the bottom cast. Um, but then in that situation, having that decision of not elevating somebody, but deconstructing my own power and my own privilege and my own um, standing in that system and just choosing not to do it. And, and exactly like you said, like, it's just, they think it's enough to try and bring others up, but not too close because, you know, I still want to be able to have a little bit of this power over you. And I'm absolutely not willing to give up any of my power. And that, I mean, we see that in, in, and I'm just going to say in America, because I don't know enough about 
other cultures to speak on it, but we see that in America so much, just that fear yeah. of losing power. And like the example I think of most recently is, you know, the Dr. Seuss enterprise wanting to discontinue six books, right? And people just losing their minds and just mm-hmm. the fear of like the government's going to come in and take all my Dr. Seuss books. And it's like, well, I mean, is that really that much of a power thing to you that yeah. you are so yeah. against giving up these children's books? You probably, let's be honest, haven't read in a couple decades, but now that someone wants to take them and just, that is just so, I mean, we see it with the, the argument over guns as well. Just that big, like, no, but this is my right to have this and this is my power and nobody's going to challenge that or take it away from me. And it's just, yeah, it's just that ego and that arrogance, um, yeah, it's, it's baffling. And it's, mm. it, I think and these, these people who think that they're doing enough to make things better and to be an ally, I think they're, they're really only doing enough for them as an individual. And they think that that's being enough, but they're not taking it any further and they're not challenging mm-hmm. other people and they're not having conversations that need to be had because I think it's even just that fear of seeming like they are willing to give up power. And I just don't think they even want to give off that impression. Yeah, that's one of the things I keep lingering on. Um, it's just the interest is to uphold the system. That's mm-hmm. that's it. So like higher caste folks want to maintain the system and uphold it. And so anything that they do that's possible, they will do that. That's it. That, that's the bottom line. Um, and I, hopefully later we'll talk a little bit more about like what are the implications of that for um, continuing to break the cycle or the system. And as we've alluded to, like whether there's hope in there or not, um, let's take a quick break and then we'll come right back. This is Doug Mackey, producer at channel two, five, three and proud Alaska airlines, frequent flyer. Everything in our day-to-day life seems to involve more hassle these days. So it feels good that Alaska airlines is making something easier. Alaska has made air travel virtually touch-free. Here's the rundown. When you check your bags at the airport, you won't have to touch the kiosk to print your bag tags. They'll print when you scan your boarding pass, or you can even print them from home. When you board your flight, they can scan your boarding pass from as much as six feet away. The lawyers want me to say that this might not work if the lighting in the terminal is low, or if the print quality of your boarding pass isn't great, but still, Kudos to Alaska for trying to maintain physical distance at every point of the trip. And don't forget, you can pre-order your meal from your phone or from your computer. You can even put your card on file in case you decide mid-flight to splurge on a local wine or beer. Get your drink without pulling out your card. Now that's the perfect blend of convenience, safety, and temptation. Those are the details that make me choose Alaska Airlines every time I fly domestically. When you're ready to travel, rest easy, because Alaska's got this. Skip the travel sites and visit alaskaair.com to book your next flight. Thank you, Alaska Airlines, for making travel smoother, and thank you for your support of Channel 253. And welcome back. So we have been having a fantastic conversation about cast and have moved into really having... Um, talking about where we see the concepts of this novel in the, the in America today. I want to highlight um, one of my students' responses to this very concept about where um, she sees cast alive and well in the United States. 
Um, I'm answering to number three. Um, an example of Wilkerson's idea of the caste system alive and well in America today or in school is, um, well, this example is something that I didn't even like think about until after I read the book. But now I wonder why like people of color are referenced as the minority. Like we, why do we call ourselves minorities? So I think that at this point in our society, um, the caste system is so embedded that it just seems normal. And we get used to this lifestyle and we just become a part of it and we live through it without question. So yeah. So some context, what I believe from the conversations I have heard this specific student have, this idea that minority groups in the United States are not the minority in the country when you take them all collectively together. And so this idea of you just, that the lower castes are just expected to accept it. And because it's so ingrained in the structure and the system that we live in, that being in the lower caste is just a part of who you are as a member of it. It is so embedded and ingrained in who you are that you don't even realize that you have accepted the social order. And watching my students come to that realization has been fascinating and really like amazing to watch them have those conversations and have the conversations also about the pitting of lower castes against each other so that they're not focused on their collective power to overtake the top, the, the um, dominant caste. Um, but what are, what are, what are y'all's thoughts on, on that idea or that concept? Yeah, I'll share a little bit. So I'm a Latina and I'm from a very small border town in South Texas, which is primarily Hispanic, mostly Mexican-American. And it's, you know, a lot of people that have come from Mexico and Central America and South America who make it into Texas and they just stay and they settle there. And it's an awesome place. But I can remember in junior high, you know, I'd heard the phrase minority probably my whole life, but I don't think I even thought about it until then. And just hearing that and hearing, you know, that we as Hispanics were considered the minority, but looking around and being like, but how can we be a minority? Like we are, you know, I'm, in, I'm surrounded by Hispanic people. Um, I, I just never understood how I could be considered a minority when I was just surrounded by that group. And just exactly like you said, just at some point, just accepting that because that's what I was told over and over. And that's how we were referred to. And, you know, just hearing my dad talk about growing up, you know, as a minority then was, I guess, a bigger deal when I was growing up, but just kind of, yeah, accepting that. Like he was like, well, I was a minority and, you know, you're still a minority and it not ever making sense to me, but I just was like, well, okay, I guess that's part of my title. And yeah, I just didn't ever really question it beyond that. And I think there was a part of me too that was like, oh, maybe we're the minority because most of the Hispanics are here in South Texas. <laughs> so like compared to the rest of the U.S., I guess maybe we really are a smaller group. And then of course, getting older and being like, that's not true at all. In my old age, I try to be more intentional about my language. And so something I started doing in my teaching career is, is like using gender neutral pronouns. So I refer to classes y'all all the time, right? Like it's an intentional language choice. Uh, 
my boy, Jose Wilson, I remember gave a talk one day. He's like, don't call me a minority. Ain't nothing minor about me. And that may be borrowed from somewhere else, but like, I like that a lot. And so like, I intentionally use the term people of color. But even that is interesting because oftentimes you'll see people using the term people of color when they really mean the black community. And so even that can be a form of erasure. And so when I'm talking about people, when I'm talking about non-white Americans, I don't say non-white because that centers whiteness. I say people of color, but I'm intentional about not saying people of color when I mean black people, right? And then funny, we started off, I was talking about race being a social construct and being constructed. So like Chrissy using the term Hispanic, like one of my favorite adult learnings is the idea that like the term Hispanic was invented by the Census Bureau back in the 1970s mm. to separate the Latina population from white people. So again, we've talked about how like whiteness is, uh, is not, it, 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 it can be changed. And so essentially mm -hmm. like uh, Latinos in the United States were given an other status by the Census Bureau as a part of redefining whiteness in the 1970s. And this term Hispanic that we use now is a, is a creation of the government wholesale. And so I guess it all leads back to that so much of the policy in the United States is about returning to Wilkerson's like pillars, is about creating a constructed superiority and a constructed mm -hmm. inferiority. Yeah. And like, yeah. that is the pillar I think that like resonated with me the most. This idea that like we, we, we essentially in society create a system that through language, through real estate choices, through educational practices, through uh, stereotyping, through law enforcement policing, through in every single way, like creates a class of people who are given superior options and expected to have superior outcomes and a class of people that are given inferior options and then given and expect to have inferior outcomes and then shame for having those inferior outcomes because of a lack of effort. And yeah. I, like, there was a, an exchange I had with Tom Rademacher this week talking about like vaccine hesitancy. So there's been a lot of talk about how the black community is vaccine hesitant because da, 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 da. But the stats tell us the people most likely to actually turn on the vaccine are white males, Republicans, non-college educated, and when those Venn diagrams overlap. And so even right there, like we've, the, the media has thoroughly shamed black folks for being vaccine hesitant when the real issue is, is that black folks lack access to the vaccine. But the media has run from and will not shame uh, Joe the plumber, Larry the cable guy, white folks, even though they are the people who are not taking the vaccine and frankly are the vectors for infection across the country. And so like it's it's everywhere. It's everywhere. I and that's so fascinating to me because before the break, I just kept thinking about the phrase toxic exceptionality, this idea of this toxic ex you are exceptional like yeah. in toxic individuality that is um pushed on and i will say white male americans that you are exceptional and if you believe that you are exceptional and that you are that the united states is exceptional and when we say the united states is exceptional really the messaging is that white america is exceptional that is the right. message right is if you believe that you are exceptional and that you are an individual and unique, it is very difficult for you to think of yourself as a collective and to see how your individual actions impact the people around you. And I think that I've thought about this through the pandemic in the United States. Um, I remember talking about this in the spring, I believe with you, Nate, of like the, that you were predicting that this was going to happen, this toxic individuality of the United States and the culture that exists. Um, 
is that people wouldn't be willing to make the sacrifices necessary in order to get this um, pandemic in control in this country, but also the pandemic of caste and racism. It's like, if you don't, if you don't see how your actions or you don't want to see how your actions perpetuate a system of oppression, there's no way that system is going to end if you're the person that's perpetuating it and are the person in power. And mm -hmm. I have seen that so frequently and I've had conversations with people that they don't realize their role in it because they have been taught that they are exceptional and, right. yeah. and they haven't had to see it and they don't want to see it. And it's just... That's where like it goes from it's more than racism. It is the structure, it is the system that we exist in. Um and like I just I I think that that's also why the United States is going on year 400 of this, right? It's one of the most deeply embedded caste systems in the world is because people can rely on this toxic exceptional exceptionality mm -hmm. of what we are like have just been embedded in who we are. Yeah, one of the things I wrote down was um, there's a perception of unreserved merit. It's the wording that I wrote down. And then just in that same section, she's talking about essentially elaborating on like white people believe that they deserve it because it is inherent in them. Mm -hmm. And everybody else doesn't deserve it because it's inherent in them. And I think that's what gets back to why this is so difficult to dismantle is because of that. How do you change that belief system? How do you, like it is passed on generation to generation. How do you change that mentality? If you, if you at the core believe that you are better than somebody else and to add in the complexity at the top of the hour that you all were talking about in regards to like religion and faith, like even more wild to me because so many faiths and so many religions don't have that as part of their like bases and infrastructure. So how did, how is the, how are those things being married in the United States and combined together? Um, really, really striking to me as, as something that I keep thinking about. If you, if you really believe nobody deserves it except you white person, then, then that's, that's almost like almost, it feels almost like the end of the story. And I think, so if I could add to that, Megan, just and kind of what you said already, hope of kind of bring it full circle about like one of the areas in America that has such heavy toxic uh, individuality is is the church, right? Even yeah. though it shouldn't, because it's so that's so hypocritical. But and hope you just said, you know, if you believe that you are deserving of this and no one else is, um, I mean, that kind of if if you are believing the church, that that makes what you just did on the cross completely moot, right? Like if you believe that you are um, better than everybody else and still call yourself a Christian or whatever, and it's just, they're so backwards and they're so against each other. Um, and if I could just say to Nate, I did not know that about the term Hispanic. And do you see, like, this is one of those, like I'm almost 37. Why did I not know that? And just, again, that zooming out of like the more I learn and just the more I realize I just don't know. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah. Why did I not know that? I wanted to ask um, for all of you in the room, is there something that, I know Nate, you've had multiple conversations about this book with a lot of different folks, but kind of to everybody here, is there something that you just can't stop thinking about and you know that you're going to keep thinking about beyond something we haven't said yet? One half of all guns owned by civilians in the world are in the hands of U.S. citizens and we jail at a higher rate than Russia and China. 
And so one of the elements I think that has not come up in the conversation yet is about the relationship. So I mentioned earlier on that I think religiosity and caste are inseparable in America. The Second Amendment and caste are inseparable yeah. in America as well. Mm -hmm. Because if you talk to the patriots, uh, those guns are for like fighting a tyrannical government. But if you look at who the racists and who the patriot movement like has and like what they really fear, it's about caste. And so the entire, like, this is why when black people are marching in the streets, gun sales go up. This is why when black folks arm themselves, gun, folks, gun, gun, gun sales go up. This is why when black folks breathe, gun sales go up. And so not only does the United States have a rigid caste system, but it has a, citizen, a citizenry where the dominant caste, many members of which, and the ones who have the most hostile views towards the lower caste are armed yeah. to the teeth yeah. and believe in open carry to intimidate and believe and believe and believe. And we see that law enforcement and constabulary does never, very rarely interact with them. Like, like we, we've mm -hmm. seen multiple examples with the protests in Portland where, like, the Patriot Front and the Proud Boys and the fascists show up with their guns and they're in mm -hmm. open violation of, of many gun laws and they basically suffer no consequence and often get police escorts out. Like, that is cast. And, in fact, the only time that we have evidence of the constabulary interfering with the far right in Portland was literally the fascists had taken a, like, a a sniper had built a sniper's pit on a parking lot above a protest. And like that bridge, that was a bridge too far. And so caste is real. The relationship between caste and the church is real, but this is all undergirded and all like supported by a citizenry that is armed and basically through stand your ground laws and through uh, a whole bunch of other reasons, the castle doctrine believes that like they have the right to murder black people with impunity. Like, the only reason a don't tread on me flag and a thin blue line flag are ever flown together is because of white supremacy. Like, if you think about the concepts behind both of those movements, yeah. like yeah. Blue Lives Matter and don't tread on me, who do you think they're afraid they were afraid was going to tread on them? The government. Like, the only reason <laughs> that you are going to fly those flags together is cast in white supremacy mm -hmm. because they just diametrically oppose each other. If you die, Megan, Megan, so Megan, you're saying that it is intellectually inconsistent to Ew. be a don't tread on me libertarian and then a strong backer of law enforcement. Wait, wait, Megan, are you suggesting that law enforcement are agents of the state? 1000 percent. I know it's shocking. I, I, I had not put that together and I'm 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 going to tell some libertarians about this. <laughs> like They'll be mad. They will be big mad. Big, big mad. <laughs> Anyways, I think it is just one of the most baffling things that I have seen, really the rise of it since the spring and um, George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. Like, I, every time I see it, I'm like, what is, like, what's going on there in, in your thinking? White supremacy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. um, yeah. In terms yeah. of, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to, any other lingering things that you, we, you're, yeah. You can't stop thinking about? I And I think that this is something that's lingering and um, based more so on my experience of hearing my students talk about this book is this concept of the model minority and um, how Asian Americans have been positioned and cast as a pawn of the dominant caste to... Um, to hold down the lower castes and 
hold up Asian Americans as like, we'll see if they can do it. And I think teaching my students about this concept of the model minority and teaching them about how pathways of immigration and only opening pathways of immigration of very highly educated and qualified Asian Americans into the country so that there's this perception is key. And um, hearing my students really grapple with their family members and their parents who they witness hold um hold feelings and really embed feelings of caste and who hold what they see believe to be racist ideals and having them like articulate that on these calls with each other and the shame mm -hmm. that comes with that but by reading this book they were able to understand it they were able to understand their parents better and they were able to open up conversations with their parents in a more meaningful way. And it wasn't just anger that they mm -hmm. felt, but more so an understanding of how their parents and how they themselves have been used in the system of caste in order to keep people in their place. And I, I think that concept is going to stick with me and, and hearing them have those conversations with each other about it is going to stick with me. Um, yeah, one of the things uh, says in the book, no current day adult will be alive in the year in which African-Americans as a group will have been free for as long as they had been enslaved. That will not come into the year 2111. Like, that has not left me. Um, and just yeah. everything that comes, that comes with that. Um, but then also one of the other things that has been lingering is the, the true story behind the free hug picture of the young oh. boy who was hugging the police officer. Yes. Whole, oh my gosh. Yeah, that, I didn't know that. Yeah. I felt really bad that I didn't know that because I saw that picture and I was just like irritated with how many people, yeah, I know you're looking at me like, how could I not know that? Awesome. Um, thanks for that. But that's one of those things, right? Like, you know, half the story, but there's the other half of the story that you don't know. Yeah. So as we're starting to kind of wrap our conversation up, I guess a uh, next kind of logical question will be, when you think about your experience with this book, how do you think it's gonna change or how has it started to um, impact your own work and thinking about the work of anti-racism, social justice and some of those other pieces? What would you all say? Arguably, I'm more pessimistic about the ability of the United States to dismantle caste than I've been. And so I think that my job continues to be what it's been, which is being a, a, a catalyst or an or a informer of normie white people, which is like, if you look at my social media following, given I'm a teacher and given the demographics of the profession, and if you think about podcasts in general, like my job and role is to be a, a conduit for normie white people to understand the issues of race in the United States and also some political radicalism. And uh, I keep doing that, I think. Uh, in many ways, I feel like being overseas, that the US is like my crazy ex-partner. And like, I understand my ex-partner far more now that we're not together than I did when we were together. I think part of the implications for me is um definitely having conversation, even just asking people like, hey, what do you think about the idea that America is a caste system? Like even just that being a question that I can ask and having content to, to back that up. But um, also just recommending this book to as many people as I can and just 
you know, really pushing how important it is. And even people who think they've already read enough, because yeah. unfortunately there are people, but it's like, you have stamped I mean, already, you know, we got stamped exactly. and finished up with some other ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's never enough, but definitely just kind of being like, it needs, you need to view this now in this way. Um, and then also just continuing to, to do the best that I can for my students and very much that, um, lifting them up, them up and bringing myself down and making sure that I never, I'm afraid to do that. And also just making sure that my students really understand that they no no one in my classroom is better than anyone else in my classroom like that's something that I really push is just that idea that and and I tell them like I'm not either like I'm putting myself in that in that uh scenario in that sentence and just really pushing that so hoping you know their little minds will <laughs> hold on to that and then be able to fight when they're told that someone else is better than them mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of building off that, one of the ways I've been thinking about this book, and maybe it's just resonating with like the journey that I'm on myself right now and, and thinking about just the role of like decolonizing. I mean, we, we've talked before about like disrupting text, decolonizing our classrooms, our book rooms and our curriculum and our lives and so on. But I, I really could not stop thinking about that as I was reading this book and just thinking about that role. Because to me, part of colonization is that white supremacist mentality, that imperialism that passed on to me, that's integral to what happened in the castes in the U.S. and in India and in various places around the world. And so thinking about what are the ways that we can fight that, even just little things, my own mentality, or as you said, with your students, right, letting them know that they all have value. Nobody has more value than somebody else. And like, how do I dismantle those infrastructures in the classroom that are, are, are saying the opposite of that, right, that are reinforcing this disparity in human value or reinforcing the caste system in some way. And just being intentional about that. Um, now that we have, I think one thing that's interesting about books when they come out, we, you know, the English teacher, me, we didn't ask this question, but just like, like now that we have this language, it doesn't like this language hasn't been around, but like, why is it now at this moment that people care more about this and they're having these conversations and everyone's picking up this book for book club or whatever. Right. So now that we have this, what are we going to do with it? And that's what I keep thinking about. Yeah, I think the unique nature of me kind of experiencing this book through the eyes of high school students, um, I think I've ended it maybe more hopeful. Um, and I tell that to my students frequently at the end of our conversations and discussions and Socratic seminars is that I am not hopeful about the current structure and system. I am not, I don't have much faith in the current leaders. I don't, and by much, I mean any. Um, I am more pessimistic about, I am pessimistic about them, right? Like the current leaders, but I am optimistic about their generation. Mm -hmm. And hearing them have conversations about this and hearing them all of a sudden, like you said, Hope, have the language behind the feelings and the things that they have been feeling. Yeah. And being able to articulate that and have meaningful and thoughtful conversations. I think that this generation, Gen Z, is going, I have, I have hope that they will be able to make that change. And I think that for me moving forward, it's investing my time and energy into them. And as a teacher, investing my time and energy into cultivating and building leaders that have the strength 
and knowledge and foundation necessary to yeah. go out into the world and have the ripple effect and to to make the change that they are capable of making, right? Because that's all all any of us can do. Yeah. And um, hopefully that will continue on, right? Hopefully they will take what they learned and implement it wherever they land. Um, and I just, because I have a lot of excitement and optimism about where they will land, I inevitably have to have excitement and optimism about the work that they'll do in order to dismantle this. Um, so it like, it, I can leave that with all of you of hearing these high school students have these conversations um, has been really powerful and really exciting. Um, and I think that this generation gets it in a way that our generation does not. And I hope that the generation after them will get it even better than Gen Z and so on and so forth. We do want to end with um, a couple of final student recordings and final thoughts. But before we go to that, we just want to thank you both for being part of the podcast. Um, Nate, do you want to talk a little bit about your episodes and encourage people to go listen over there? Because this was no, a collab I want a real, no, I, I want a real pain champagne. No. <laughs> <laughs> It's not part of our book club episodes. If you had listened to the book club episode, <laughs> so you, you might know time, that's our routine. If you had taken the time to listen. Plus, you class, you class out pretty in shade. I, I say lots of real pain in this episode. We're good. Fine. Do you want to um, share about your episodes, though? Get people to listen. Yeah, I did two episodes around the book cast. My first episode featured uh, Most Valuable Listener, Hallie Kanigi, uh, Aaron Jones, and the president of PLU, Alan Benton. So Alan Belton, uh, all talking about how they're working to deconstruct the racial order in their institutions and places they work with. By the way, the racial order is a, t is a phrasing that I've started using from David Frum. I don't know why I'm adopting David Frum's language, but like I feel like it's more accessible and clearer than cast, but like same idea. Uh, and then I did a second episode with Logic Amen, who's a storyteller, creator, and vice principal at Lincoln High School, and a friend of mine, honestly. Uh, and we talked about cast in K-12, having to do with both staff and with students. And both of those are available on nerdfarmpod.com or on Spotify or on iTunes or wherever you get it. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Christy, thank you so much. Any other final thoughts before we say goodbye? No, just thanks for having me. It was great. All right, so off to the students uh, to end on a final note. Thanks, everybody, for listening today. Thank you. Bye. Um, I think everybody should read this book because it's always nice to have different point of views and to understand other people's point of views on certain topics, especially um, on political topics. Because for me personally, before reading the book, I was so tunnel vision um, because all the news outlet and the media is feeding me the same information. Um, but then after reading the book, if it like allowed me to be more aware and um, open my eyes up to like the things that is actually going around um, my world or our world on a day to day basis. And it just like allowed me to understand why people do certain things or like wh why people react to certain cer in a certain way and things like that. Or like how does like the government work and like why it works like that. And I feel like if everybody like can understand that a lot of the world a lot of like the problems that's going around our world can be like solved because of just like a mutual understanding. Who should read the book? 
I believe it should be young adults who are in high school on their way to becoming adults and transitioning to life and then also older generations because I feel like there's a gap between our generation and older generations. Everyone has their own perspectives and there's not as much open-mindedness, but while reading this book, it helps create more perspective. It helps you gain more knowledge. It helps you create more opinions and thoughts and create a new outlook on life. So I think that everyone should honestly read the book. It will help you grow as a learner and it also will help you not be as close-minded. I personally recommend it. It's a really important book to read. It's really good to see what others think. So yeah. When reading the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, I always ask myself, who can I recommend this book to? And the first thing that comes to my mind is people learning about culture. The reason why I think Cast is a good book for people having an introduction to culture is because when you're learning about culture, you have to be unbiased. You have to understand that everyone comes from a different place and everyone has their own challenges in which cause their downfall or uprising. For example, people who are at the bottom of the cast have to overcome more obstacles than someone who has more privilege. So even then, people at the bottom of the cast, they still have privilege because they are tending to fall into subcasts. For example, people who are African-American and have lighter skin may have more privilege because they look more white compared to African-Americans with darker skin. So that's why I honestly believe Cass is a good book to recommend to people learning about culture because it's a good check on yourself and learning on how to be unbiased. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. The Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows, Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.